0: This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. This story uh, about Camp Kilku, I'm going to dive right into it. I didn't go to that camp, but I am an overnight camp uh, historian. I know all the camps in the GTA. I know all the camps in Cottage Country well. Anytime I can get a chance to talk to somebody about their experience at camp, I'm happy to do it because camp really made me the... The person I am. I think it's one of the most important, seminal experiences I ever had. And uh, when I got sent to um, and I really did get sent the first year and then couldn't wait to go back year after year after year. I only went to overnight camp for three years. First year in 1987 as a camper to Camp Manitou Wobbing in Perry Sound. I bet you there's a Manitou alumni listening right now. Uh, You can text me right home of the moose, moose by the lake, whatever it was, 416-870-6400 right now. And then I went back as staff in training, um, playing a lot of tennis and teaching radio skills, believe it or not. They had a 50-watt radio station there, and that was a big part of the appeal. My mom's like, we're driving you everywhere. Your driving is crazy. Your two younger sisters can't stand you. How about going somewhere overnight for the last, like basically the last three weeks of the summer before you go to, um, before you go to 11th grade? And eventually the idea sounded cool to me. You know, you go to dining hall, mess hall. I really had only done a couple sleepaway camps, day camps where you maybe do one night for a sleepover. And I was fifteen. But but then two years later, there's me camp counselor. I'm seventeen, turning eighteen that summer. Is eighty nine. Um, is the summer. My recollection is is the summer. Guns and Roses were massive, and the movie Batman came out. The Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Batman. Batman. So um, I'll get to the modern story, but let me just say or the, the current story in, in front of me right now and in front of all of us, because I think there's going to be a ton of debate about this all day long. And, uh, and I'll try and you know set the table for the other shows to take this on. But I'm a huge advocate of going overnight to camp. Now, two things I can think of you being worried about when you send your kid to overnight camp. And if I were to send my kid to overnight camp later this summer, and believe me, he's sleeping till 1 p.m., and I'm strongly considering it. But the two things I'd be worried about would be the influence of, of other campers. Hey, have you ever done this before? No? Well, let's try it. That could be something to drink, some kind of drug, some kind of this, some kind of that. Did I see that at camp? Sure, I did. Of course I did. But it wasn't really my thing. I was like, okay, you're into that. That's cool. We'll we'll agree that I won't be, and, and we'll still hang out and, and be buddies, but you do what you do, and I'll do what I do. But I, I had that sense of independence about it then. I understand parents going, I wouldn't want it to be the other way around. But listen, you're eventually going to have to say yes to things in life that you haven't tried before, and you're going to say no to things in life that you uh, also haven't tried before, and and you make your calls along the way. Okay, We, we can't helicopter and, and baby kids. When they're 15, 16, 17, 18, I think that'll cost us when they're 19, 20, 21, 22. But Kilku Camp is near Minden. And right now, its director, who just stepped down yesterday, temporarily, is facing uh, lawsuits, two of them, from the same lawyer, uh, alleging sexual assaults. And so that was my second one. It just was. And it just is. That's what we put faith in. Trust so many other synonyms in the idea of you've got my kid, you take care of him. You've got my kid, boy, girl, whatever. I've got the confidence and the reliance and the expectation that 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 you'll make sure he or she is okay Within reason, they've got some individual responsibility also. But these lawsuits were filed in a Bracebridge court last week. This camp is up uh, in Halliburton near Minden. And um, both plaintiffs accuse David Latimer, who's been the director since 1985. So, like, we're almost talking 40 years. Family bought it in the 50s. Latimer takes over uh, as the director in 1985. I would assume he's in his 60s now because I would guess he's in his 20s then. And the accusation is, he said, accusation, unproven, sexually assaulted a preteen school camper in the early 1990s and a former staff member in 2009. Now, um, we just went through a run, really famous person, right? Two-time Academy Award winner, Kevin Spacey, where there were accusations against him. But two things sort of shifted the public's uh, perception of what could have happened here with Kevin Spacey. One was, once there was one accusation, all of a sudden there were three. Next thing you knew, there were eight. Then there's 13. And it was in the teens, by the time it all ended, of young men saying, Kevin Spacey assaulted me. Kevin Spacey groomed me. That's a, the G word wasn't a word that we were using a lot until the last several years. And there's a lot, a lot in the media of it, but that's the word in the lawsuit is the plaintiffs are accusing Latimer, the Kill Coup director, of grooming and manipulating them into believing they were in a romantic relationship with him. Now, there's two major issues here. One, this gets to the heart of, uh, are you taking care of my kids or are you not? And, and, and part of that one is if these two complainants are joined soon by many more, I think we've got something here. Why we might not have something here, and why I'm seeing just in the Toronto Star article itself, why I'm seeing that this is going to be potentially a difficult case to convict Latimer is not that there's consent because consent you can't manufacture consent at a certain age. So if there's proof of these romantic relationships, uh, and this is age-based, Latimer's in some big trouble here. Like massive trouble. He's a predator and potentially a pedophile if, if okay, uh, these things are, are proven to be true and are accurate. He is not, and he's being wrongfully confused. If the timeline works, especially with the second, there's a J Doe number one and a J No Joe number two. And if the J Doe number two, um, who worked at Kilku for four years, Four years, okay? You don't have to go back to camp. I wanted to go back in 1990, and um, and it just wouldn't work for one circumstance or another, but it turned out it was probably the best thing for me um, to work, wait tables, make more money. I was starting university that fall, all of that. I don't know how you'd go back the next summer and then the next summer and then a fourth straight consecutive summer Unless and and when you're at the age where you can consent, you're 19. He's in his late 40s. I know how that looks. I know how that sounds. And I'm awfully suspicious about the case here. And I'm suspicious there will be more accusations. I don't know if there will. I don't know if there won't be, but it won't surprise me if they are. How about that? Um, But she worked at this camp until 2013 when she was about 23. So it's not a crime to manipulate somebody into believing they were in a romantic relationship. You can think it's scuzzy. I can think it's scuzzy. And it's gross. It isn't going to be deemed illegal by a court if, if that's problematic. So I'm going to talk about this more after 8 o'clock this morning. Both plaintiffs want more than $1.5 million in total compensation. And I mentioned, I, I'm glad I uh, clarified Latimer's in his 60s now. He's 61. He would have been 23 in 1985 when he took over uh, this camp. They've taken the bio off the camp's website, but he maintains his innocence. This is Camp Kilku up near Halliburton. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're talking about a case... That is concerning, uh, but it's concerning if the accused is innocent here. Uh, David Latimer is the director of Camp Kilku, um, and I know the camp camp name right away. I'm like, Kilku, I know that name, Um, and it's boys and girls used to go there, but it's now known as a camp for boys. I don't know when that switch happened. I'm not sure when that switch happened, Um, but yeah, uh, a female former staffer and a former camper of an unknown gender, I should note, uh, alleged sexual misconduct. Their stories don't, don't match up, but I bring this up to note that this is going to obviously get a ton of attention. It's going to get a ton of attention. And I want to know, is this a fear when you send a child or teen away to camp? I mentioned going to overnight camp for three years. For better or worse, I, I just understood what a responsibility it was. I We missed, I think, during a COVID window in 2020, probably the best year to send our oldest to overnight camp. And now he's 17. I don't think we can. But those three summers away prepped me so much for living on my own. It prepped me about relationships. It, it prepped me about friendships. Like, no word of a lie. It, 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 it was seminal in terms of preparing me for late teen years for early adulthood and there's some bad days there there's some bad moments there sometimes of my own creation um and then you learn like i i i felt so strongly about the camp experience and i think we're all also looking going it's more important than ever like we want to reconnect kids social isolation not great kids have a harder time interacting also not great that's manifesting itself in a variety of ways camp just sort of Stoom, blows all that up and and gets them back together. I'm real curious to know if you're a parent, whether this is a fear of yours. And I would love to hear from Campbell alumni who um, who say incredible. Like I've never heard of a, of a bad experience. I, I had the best time. It was the most incredible time. I never saw or heard of things that shouldn't have happened. And I didn't myself either. I didn't myself. Of course, there was drinking to be honest, late teens, there was sex. There were drugs. I I didn't want anything to do with that. I'm just not, I'm not a drug guy is the best way I can put it. But, but yeah, there were uh, uh, adults and late teens doing things, not nine and 10 year olds. I never saw anything where I thought that's really wrong. I never saw a thing that I said, that's really wrong, but I want to hear from you. And you can tell your story to me, Brad. Thanks very much for the phone call. You lead us off. You go right ahead. Thank you. Uh, Good morning. Um, Very positive experience. When I was younger at an organized camp, um, it, as it relates to Kilku, I've heard nothing but positive from friends who went, from friends of my kids that have gone. I, I, you know, I know people dialed into that camp. So I, I, yeah. don't know. I, mean, I don't know, but it shouldn't deter people from participating in something like that or any institution. I mean, you know, at the risk of sounding, <clears throat> taking it off topic, People still go to Catholic Church on a Sunday. So I don't think people should be warn your children, have conversations with your children to be open and honest, but not deter from camp experience. I think you nailed it. I, Brett, uh, Brett, I think you nailed it. And for those who had great experiences like you did, like I did, I, I think we'd say the same about sports. Well, I had a great experience with sports, and I never had a moment with uh, a coach in any sport, team sport, individual sport, where I thought that's not right how he spoke to me or approached me or anything, but that doesn't, or Boy Scouts, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Like like everything is its own individual package and we can't sort of, you know, throw a blanket over an entire industry and say there's something wrong with this industry. We can't do it. Exactly. I agree. Thanks very much for the phone call. I want to keep this going. Kathleen, thanks for the phone call. You're on 640 Toronto. You go right ahead. Hi, Craig. Excellent Hi. topic. Thank you.
1: Uh, I'm an alumni. I'm, uh, I guess, mid mid to late 70s, and uh, I guess it was grade seven. Excellent, excellent. Maybe the person I am today. Yeah. Outdoorsy. Um, I can remember it cost my mom a lot of money about $70 back in those days. And it was, oh, it was a lot. Single parents. Can I tell you,
0: I'll tell you a funny story, Kathleen, before you continue. My parents wanted to send me for three weeks to Camp Manitou in 87. I was 15 years old and they took a bond that my my grandma, my mom's mom, had put put aside for me to go to university and they cashed it in then. They never told her. (laughs) They never told her, but they knew I needed, we needed that money. I needed to go. uh, and, And then I came back begging to make sure I could go the next year for eight weeks and be a staff in training. And then I was staffed two more years. I loved it. I loved every second of it.
1: As I said, it made it made you the person you are today.
0: Yeah. So so when there's when there's an allegation like this, I I worry that we have to judge this as an individual allegation. But I it'd be a shame if parents are like, you see, that's why I don't send my kids to camp because then you'll never send them anywhere. You'll never send them anywhere if you feel that way.
1: Well, they're they're clutch parents. You have to do your research in these days and times. It's research, and you just gotta you just gotta go on in the experiences that you were. It's that's why being a parent is so important. You have to teach your children. And you have to let go. You have to have trust. And unfortunately, when these things happen, it kind of sends an an echo, a reverberation through the whole system. What did you think and the best
0: part of you going to camp was for you? What did you love about oh, it the most? Oh,
1: man. Oh, man. I think I was about 13. The coming out, it was like, I can remember doing overnighters. Yeah, I can remember two overnighters, the 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 sports, the archery the uh, it was almost what was that movie um, oh my goodness, that comedy movie where the camp counselors are ganging up on the director and he keeps ending up
0: meatballs
1: meatballs or something along <laughs> that way, yeah, oh man, it was almost just like that, unfortunately, mm-hmm. like we we weren't mean, but the cabins the uh the mess, the eating with everybody.
2: Yeah. I don't
1: remember any fights. I just remember like we actually even earned we weren't allowed pop or chips. <laughs> I think it was one, once a week. We had a canteen and we had to earn points to get like a, a can of pop. Maybe that was once a night.
0: Yeah, like, there, so, there was so there was there were so many things like that. I mean again, I I, I look, I, I could do a camp chat for three. I can't thank you enough for calling Kathleen I appreciate you listening to the show. There were so many moments where you um, you you had to get up early too. Like we're watching this right now, I can't tell you how many people I hear from. Teen, my teenager sleeps in. He he sleeps until this time, that time, this time, and you had to get up. Like I remember having to be at the tennis courts at eight thirty. You had to be there, and if you and you were on the court for two hours, hot weather, windy weather, whatever, you were out there. And my point in saying that is, you had to get breakfast, so you had to hustle it, get to breakfast. Wolf down a bowl of cereal, some powdery scrambled eggs, uh, some apple juice. You needed some sustenance before you went out and played tennis for two hours, even at, even at 14. Like, I took my tennis seriously back then. And again, this is about my worry is I think parents have gone in two different directions post-pandemic. I think the pandemic has sharpened some parents' instincts, not in a great way, to overmanage, to swoop in, to, uh, to, to helicopter more than ever. And by the way, if this sounds familiar, I don't think it's too late to correct it. It never is. And summer camp gives you safe space, separate space. Kids think independently, outside, physical fitness, waking up on time. Uh, I'm the biggest advocate for it there is. So when I see a story like this, my blood boils and I want it not to be true. But then I also want justice if these two um, accusers are legitimate victims. I don't know where this story is going to go. I just know we're going to talk about it. And I'm, I always sort of reject the idea that something happens somewhere. And you're like, well, this is a problem throughout this entire industry or that entire industry. I don't think so. But again, these are the first two accusers. Will there will there be more is a fair question. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's News. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I want to talk about recent poll numbers federally. I want to talk about a couple comments uh, from the prime minister and a couple other things with the uh, deputy leader of the uh, Conservative Party of Canada. She is Melissa Lantzman. Melissa, I always enjoy having you on. Thanks very much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, Now, this is a uh, this is a bit of a, a minefield, I think, for the prime minister who says housing is not a federal responsibility. This is that's a bit of a dangerous game to play. I think I would make the case there's been a lot of neglect on the housing file from a lot of years of Justin Trudeau. And I'd make the case for Stephen Harper prior to that. But I don't I don't think there's much dispute, is there, that housing's very much a federal responsibility at its core. We have a housing minister for that reason.
2: Yes, and and, and a new housing minister at that. We have the prime minister who is on record in 2015, uh, subsequently in 2021, saying that we are going to make housing more affordable. And then, lo and behold. You know, a few days ago, the prime minister says, well, it's not a federal responsibility, or it's not primarily a federal responsibility, and I just don't think Canadians are buying it. Under this prime minister, housing prices have doubled. A mortgage payment has doubled. Rent has doubled. And now it takes 25 years to save for a down payment, where at once you could have paid for a mortgage in 25 years. That is, by all accounts, failure on the uh, on the
0: file. What's the relationship supposed to be between the federal government and the CMHC? Because I've seen a lot of chat about that in the last couple of days. Tell our listeners, no, that's-, that, that's the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, but what should... It's not a... It's not; it's a government arm, but it's not quite a government-controlled arm. How would you explain what it's supposed to do?
2: Look, this is these, these are these are these are just all points that make it a federal responsibility. The CAHC governed, um, you know, federally. The, the mortgage insurance in this country governed federally. Uh, infrastructure funding governed federally. And rather than that, I talk about the the plan about how to get municipalities to unblock how. Uh, um, some of the housing that we can and should be be getting built in this uh, in this country, we had the prime minister out announcing 214 houses. The CMHC says we need about three and a half million to fill uh, the 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 numbers of, of people coming to this country for a place to live. Our housing starts have never been lower, other than of course the uh, the the pandemic year, and it takes the longest in terms of getting a permit. It are the sixty. 64th in in all advanced economies for how long it takes to get shovels in the ground to build a house. So there is lots the feds can do, and some of the plan that we've talked about uh, does exactly that. We'll withhold funding from municipalities who block housing. We'll sell off 15% of the 37,000 government buildings to make room for affordable housing. Those are all levers that the federal government could have taken, but instead they spent $94 billion dollars uh, to have some of the worst housing starts on record.
0: Melissa Lanceman's our guest on Toronto Today. So, your GTA MP, you look around Toronto, though I'd argue uh, all up and down the 401s uh, and in university towns, especially, housing is a massive, massive problem. Rent is a massive, massive problem. Do you look and say, some of these um, GTA mayors, Melissa, are saying, well, the federal government's trying to push us around? I actually think, bipartisanly speaking, it's incumbent upon all MPs to. Um, Bully is a strong word, but I think strongly call out and influence some of the mayors and some of the sub- Mississauga is an obvious one where they're they're doing a lousy job. And that's that's how mayors get called NIMBYs. And that's how mayors get put on on, you know, called on the carpet for their poor number of housing starts. There has to be, a uh, you know, has to be a call out, I think, on all sides of the political spectrum when that happens.
2: Well, certainly so. I wouldn't call it bullying, and I would call it a a sticks and carrots uh, approach. Mm -hmm. We will reward those municipalities with federal funding who who get housing built, and we will penalize the ones that don't. And I think it's time to stop having the polite meetings on we're working together and actually get housing built, because the cost of housing, not only in the GTA, like you, you mentioned, because it's completely unaffordable. There are People that grew up in in, in my riding who would never dream of living in the place that they grew up. It's just out of reach. And that has happened uh, uh, across the country. It is worse than the GTA. We are the the 10th highest uh, in terms of housing prices in the world. Uh, Vancouver is the third. And we've got more land to build than anyone else uh, on that list.
0: Let us behind the curtain a little bit. When you remember going to university, you were in at U of T, you went to, uh, lived in Ottawa as well for your graduate work. I mean, I never remember. I, I went to school in the in the mid to late 90s, but I never remember coming even close to paying $800, $900 of rent. I think we're all ready. I've got a kid going to university in 13 months. I'm ready to pay upwards of 1800 $2,000. I sure don't want to, but these are the conversations we're having. What do you remember paying?
2: Yeah, look, I paid five hundred bucks, um, and we shared an apartment. Uh, you know, three three of us um, shared an apartment. And we paid five hundred bucks each, and that that was in downtown Toronto. Amazing, yeah. Uh, at the time, so that's that's long gone. We've got uh, you know we've got an, a young uh, a, a young internship in our in our in our office, and some of these kids are paying uh, you know two thousand dollars to live in places like like Kingston and London. Uh, and you know this this is a this is a huge difference, and it made the difference between you know what what was what was easy to accomplish after school with you know certainly less debt uh, or or in some cases uh, no debt because you can work off uh, that money in the in the summer in a in a job. There is no way that you leave university today. Without, uh, without that. And that puts students behind uh, when it comes to accessing the, the, the job market and doing the things that they want to do. I know that
0: uh, I know this is almost more a provincial responsibility, but I'd, I'd reckon, Melissa, we also have an international student crisis. And I think some of that lands with the provincial governments across the country, not just the Ford government here, in that we're inviting these students saying, this will be here for you. It'll be affordable. Sign up. Pay this massive amount of tuition. They get here. There's nowhere to live that's affordable there's no job for them and we we saw a story about a conestoga college student last week who was living under a bridge for four days it's horrific what we're doing here
2: yeah we were seeing students uh you know accessing food banks living in uh in shelters we've never seen that in canada and some of this lies with of course the 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 federal government who, uh, who makes Sort of visa promises. We've got students attending colleges that when they get there, those colleges are not even real. We should have, you know, we should have a, a checked list of, of you know, the, the, the real colleges that people can uh, attend and a path to PR. We need immigration in this country. We need our students uh, in this country to fill the jobs. But I think immigration needs a complete mm-hmm. Uh, revamped, uh, making sure that we are bringing into to Canada the people that we need for the job market, making sure that those numbers reflect family uh, reunification to, to meet your uh, loved ones, uh, and has a stream of a path to actually becoming a Canadian citizenship and not leaving people here in limbo, particularly without mm. a place to live and a doctor to see.
0: I got about 90 seconds left. Uh, You had uh, a debate, I'll call it, um, with the current finance minister and deputy prime minister, a fellow uh, GTA MP, about how she gets to work, how she does her transit. She made comments in Prince Edward Island. I know how they landed with Prince Edward Islanders. I heard from them even here in Ontario. Um, what's fair and what's not fair? She uh, I'd make the case and she might make the case. There's a security detail that's needed. There has to be some protection. She can't just hop on the up express when she's going to Pearson for a flight. If Melissa Lantzman were the deputy prime minister, how would you have to change your travel? What's what's fair comment on that?
2: Craig, there's no doubt that uh, that the, everybody knows that the minister has a, a, a driver and has a security detail. And that seems necessary, uh, certainly for uh, for her and, and many of the, the other ministers. Uh, and that's been the case uh, throughout history. But the fact of the matter is, is you cannot lecture Canadians about not driving when you have a taxpayer-funded driver. Nobody is Nobody is talking about her having a driver. Everybody is talking about her saying that she doesn't, that she doesn't use a car, and that a subway or walking or riding your bike is the solution for all Canadians, which we clearly know that it's not. It's out of touch, uh, and uh, and frankly, it shows a complete disregard for the ex- how expensive life has become for Canadians as a result of these liberal policies.
0: i got to leave it there. Melissa, thanks very much for the conversation. hope you're enjoying your summer, and I look forward to our next chat. Thanks for this. Thanks, guys. Melissa Lantzman joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. So this has some complexities to it, this story. Uh, A long time ago, to be honest, like before the Ford government was in power, um, there was a bronze statue of Queen Elizabeth II. um, That's massively, uh, it weighs a lot, 2,000 kilograms. Um, so I don't think it's uh, in in any fear of getting stolen, but it's been in storage for about six years. And finally, there's discussion about putting it on the uh, on the grounds of the Ontario Legislature. Um, they've been a little slow getting this done. This was talked about in March, and now it's August. Um, but there certainly are people saying this shouldn't be a massive priority right now. There's the practicality of what should be prioritized, and there's the message that the statute does send. And one such person is uh, NDP member of provincial parliament, Saul Mamakwa. Saul, I always appreciate you coming on Toronto today. You know that. Thanks for making the time this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. When you first got, um, I suppose, wind of this is the best way I can put it. Uh, what did, did you think? Was it about the timing of this or was this about why is this a massive priority when, when we have practical things we really need to do in this province?
3: Yes, uh, there's so many things that are happening uh, you know, in Ontario and across the country, but also in far northern Ontario and uh, and I think um you know when we talk about the statue itself, uh, you know, I think for uh you know we all have different lenses, uh different views, but I think uh, from my point of view, you know, it uh, it exudes uh colonialism. The statue exudes colonialism, it uh exudes um you know, oppression. And it's a continued uh, uh, to kind of focus on that right now. Um, you know, it's uh, you could do it somewhere. You know, you could do something else. And, but I think, uh, but I think uh, on on another on another thing too is uh, you know uh, we understand we know First Nations have a very unique relationship with the Crown, and I am talking about that because of the nature of the treaty relationship and. Um, I know that uh, these uh, historic treaties that were signed with the crown in a nation-to-nation relationship, and it's, however, the province, the mm-hmm. federal government, that do not honor and respect the treaties.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I see that. And I think when we get around, it usually happens when, when a, an anniversary happens of something. So let's say we come to the anniversary in September of the Queen's passing. I think we'll reflect on what's changed in the last year and i think a lot of people saw thought maybe we'd ha- we'd make a shift slightly away from the monarchy in ontario in canada just just being as prominent in our lives no, you know we're not going to have many scenarios like this ever again where there's going to be a queen that is in essence the head of our state for 60 years but that said not a lot has changed not a lot has changed in the last eleven months about the relationship. Still on our money. Still, you know, prominent and uh, and and it's just felt very static in the last eleven months. Is the best way I can put it.
3: Yes, and I think that's uh, very true. And I know that uh, we continue to see, uh, you know, uh, uh, our ways of life, uh, you know, eroded through, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, to the. Some of the uh, the legislative bulldozers that are continuing to happen in the north, like uh, with example, is mining, right? And um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, we have to understand, uh, you know, like our ways of life, uh, our identity, language, uh, all comes from the land. And and when it, when you continue to do that, uh, that erodes uh, of who we are as the first peoples of these lands. And uh, and I think one of the things too is uh, you know um, when we talk about monuments, and one of the things that happened during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, was there was a recommendation, uh, I can't remember what number it is, but I it, think uh, it's 92, it, and that every provincial capital will have a monument for Indian Residential school survivors. And this clearly has not even happened in Ontario. And that's, you know, this is not reconciliation for this government anyway. You know, they don't care really care about uh, First Nations uh, on, uh, you know, reconciliation.
0: I think you're right about that, and I think I think you and I might concur that it's it's getting taught more in schools. Kids are coming home, all kids, uh, indigenous kids, black kids, Asian kids, white kids, and they're coming home and and they're learning lessons about what was missed, what our parents missed, what was what was absolutely uh, either ignored because of well, just plain ignorance or or ignored by design. So those are practical things that I think are going to help us understand where we've been and where we need to go. But I also do think symbolism matters to your point and having some kind of structure historically that documents, um, the tragedy and, and the pain of residential school survivors, I agree would matter. And to your point, there's, I, you know, you're, you're one of the rare politicians that says we need to do something about this and we need to do it sooner than 15, 20 years from now.
3: Yes, exactly. And, uh, and I think, uh, uh when we do these monuments and um you know especially in uh you know public monuments uh you know i I'm in a belief that you know that first nations should be consulted in the decision making uh especially at the people's house uh, queen's park ontario's legislature right and uh, uh and i think it's uh you know we have to be able to talk to them as well because, especially, like you know like uh, sometimes uh you know history has uh very important on how we viewed not just the one side of history, we have our own history as well. Like when we talk about, uh, again, uh, you know, how did, uh, you know, uh, you know the, the monarchy came to be? How did they come to be? Because it's, you know, it's all based on um, colonialism, oppression, and stolen lands. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's how they. That's how they got rich. You know, where did those come, stones come from, and those type mm. of things, right? So, I think it's really important for uh, you know uh, children to uh, students uh, across Ontario to be able to learn the real history, like our lived history, not just yeah. uh, you know your side of the history, right? So, it's uh, that is always important. And then when every time I talk to youth, children, you know, uh, grades, you know, three and four, and nine and ten, or whatever, like that's where the changes. Uh, you know, that's where. That's how change happens. Change is not going to happen immediately, but we have to work on on it as well at the at the provincial level.
0: Salman Mamac was our guest on Toronto today. Um, several of your colleagues in the NDP um, raised an issue with uh, retaking oaths to to King Charles last September. I, I understand why. Um, do you feel like the other MPPs in the House respect that you feel that way? And and summarily. Do you respect that there are MPPs that want to take that oath that feel that strongly that they want to give theirs? Like, can we would we find a happy medium where you're respected and and your group also is able to respect that others want to, but you don't?
3: Hey, um, if I don't take that oath, like I cannot be an MPP. Like I'm always, I'm just forced to say those words and uh, you know to uh, say the oath to. Uh, um, you know, uh, a colonial queen, and and I think that's important uh, for me uh, to understand that. But I think I, but I also I respect um, you know that uh, my colleagues' decisions, and I don't have any ill um, uh, feelings about that. And you know that that is their right. And um, you know, but I think uh, I'm only one person. I'm only uh, a person that uh, has different. Uh, thoughts on it? Like I'm not sure how everybody is, but I but I think uh, I I have no uh, questions of uh, you know if they uh, take that oath to the king when uh, last year or earlier this year when mm-hmm. we did that.
0: I, I'm spotting before you go uh, that we're we're just past a year of. Um, pope francis doing his tour and it was covered a ton by the media um sometimes news gets slower in the summer we were just off the provincial election and and we we would talk about it um when you reflect on this a year past there were there was a lot of travel there were a lot of people that that gathered to see him and what i liked about the process was again we can we could agree to disagree there were indigenous leaders that were very passionate about saying I'm so glad he's here. He needed to be here. He he's walking the walk now and he's here and he's 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 doing the proper Maikapos. There were other indigenous leaders that said it's too late. I don't want to hear it. And I I respect both those opinions. Again, the the world's about opinions going around. You're in the Queen's Park Legislature and you see it every day. How do you reflect on his visit a year later? What did it mean to you?
3: Yeah, first off, uh Greg, I think it's uh we're all at different levels of uh are healing, uh, whether we're intergenerational survivors or survivors, and uh, and I think uh, there is a lot of good talk that are that is happening. But I think it's important, you know, on the action itself. You know, like there's so much uh, historical uh, trauma from the Indian residential school system that have been impacted for generations, right? And um, I think it's important to. Uh, uh, to acknowledge, uh, you know, um, that we need some uh, some type of healing initiative to be able to move mm-hmm. forward in a good way, and you know, to teach the history of the real history of Ontario, the real history of Canada, on how we, uh you know, Ontario and Canada came to be from our perspective as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, one of the things that uh, the Pope did uh, recently as well is, uh, you know, in early June, I believe, and uh, is uh, the doctrine of the discovery and. Uh, and when they talked about uh, paper balls, about uh, you know, you know, um, uh, about uh, you know, uh, not following those anymore, and uh, yeah, and I think that's really important.
0: Hey, Saul, thanks so much for the time. I, I always enjoy, and I'm always enlightened uh, when you come on the show and and getting your perspective on it. I hope you're enjoying your summer, and and uh, and I hope you'll come on again really soon. Yes, um, great for having me. Uh, thank you, Greg. You're welcome. There's Salma Makwa, uh, NDP, MPP. Again, uh, always learn things from that chat. It, it's. I think it's going to get discussed a ton next month when we have the one-year anniversary of Queen Elizabeth's passing, because there was all this talk, what's Canada going to do going forward with the monarchy? How I, I think we can all feel that there isn't a King Charles connection. Like there is a Queen Elizabeth connection. What's he supposed to do? There isn't going to be. There, There isn't now. And there sure isn't going to be two, three years from now either. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Let's get to this audio of uh, this is Dan Campbell, the Detroit Lions head coach. This is not a uh, we're not breaking down the Lions potential to win the NFC North. But we're fascinated by this. He went on um, a Barstool Sports uh, podcast and a rumor That was circulating a couple years ago was brought back to prominence and this is the Lions head coach being asked about his uh, desire at one point to have a live lion on the sideline at home games in Detroit Michigan at Ford Field. Here's the exchange. You, you talked to us last time on, on part of my take. You said that you had considered getting a pet lion on the sidelines. I did. Did you? Have you had any further conversations about bringing a live lion? Well, I, I would say that Sheila was. She had no problem with it, but the league apparently frowns on those um, type of things. Roger Goodell, John, no John Gooden, was I'm right. Not, I'm not going to point out Roger on this. I'm just going to say that the the league frowns on that. Let's just say that. Okay. Would be yeah. nice though to have a lion sitting behind Jack Fox, being like, you better, you better punt that. <laughs> it does add a little little scare tactic it does you guys got to play it's for a little job extra motivation yeah. yes uh-huh. it does so um i'm a big animal person i i, I don't know anybody who would i mean you know I, I do i have them i love domesticated pets but i guess i also could admit that i like eating them sometimes <laughs> uh, not a lion um but but i i think you increase ratings right away you get this lion on, on. give him a long chain, a long chain, so he's got some roaming capabilities. I know there's people on the sideline, right? There's cheerleaders, cameramen, but the kickers and punters who are skinny guys anyway, who, who aren't going to be able to hold up. Uh, the lion might look at them and go, that would be a tasty snack for a one o'clock, uh, you know, October game. But I'm watching more Lions football. If there, I know there's a lion on the sideline. Lyle, Georgia has a bulldog uh, named Uga, the University of Georgia. And I know that I tune into Georgia games just to see the bulldog patrolling the sideline. I do. It's an actual given fact that my television habits are based on a sideline mascot. That's an animal. It, it just seems like the live animal aspects make anything better. You look at Jake the Snake Roberts in wrestling. He was interesting because he had a python <laughs> with him. So I, yeah. I, I can't see this not working in the exact same way. I say get rid of the chain entirely. Give him an enclosure. Give him like the whole sideline. Let him just walk up and down that. Have him close to people. Make sure it's super trained and everything like that. But uh, I, I, I don't see the problem here. I would, however, have loved to been a fly on the wall of the corporate offices when that paper came through the machine. The email, said, you know how you got it. Most people don't do no subject in an email yeah. and your email request from the lions is live lion on sidelines. Like how quickly <laughs> are you opening that email? <laughs> yeah. And
1: absolutely. then you're like,
0: wait a minute, have they already done it? Have they already done it? And didn't ask our permission? Cause we can't have that at the corporate offices. Um, important to note that I mentioned UGA once named uh, by sports illustrated, the greatest sports mascot, other mascots include uh, 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 Tennessee has a uh, a blue tick hound named Smokey, the Tennessee Volunteers do, and Georgia Southern has an eagle. Oh. That's a tough thing to keep a hold of because it, that thing gets loose. I assume an eagle or a falcon. I don't know much about them, but they're supposed to stay on the owner's shoulder. Like, you're a good owner. I I judge the quality of your eagle training and and falcon training if that thing doesn't get loose. But you can't have a live eagle flying around a stadium. You can't have that. Especially with food. There's concessions. Yep. Um, And I swear also, Miami Dolphins had a... When I was a kid, I seem to remember a pool past the end zone, and there were live dolphins... Beyond where like you, like somebody could run a pass pattern, a wide receiver, and then he'd run into the pool and like knock himself out. But wasn't that the entire plot line of Ace Ventura? Sure was, wasn't it? That's Snowflake. Was so clearly, and it wasn't even a thing by the '90s. Even if Dan Marino's in there <laughs> and Courtney Cox pre-friends, there were no, I don't think that there were live dolphins in the end zone after about 1985. PETA must have got involved at that yeah. point. And said, listen, there's footballs getting kicked into the pool. They don't know what to do with them. They don't know if the field goal was good. They wake up in a bad mood on Sunday. And it's a dolphin in a pool. It's that too.